through 11. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Beginning in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for sovereignly moving men by your Spirit to write these words and for preserving them through us, or for us through the ages down to this very day. Lord, we thank you for giving the scriptures to your church. We thank you that you use your word as a means, not only of salvation, through the hearing of the truth, applied by your spirit, but we also thank you that you use the word to edify and equip your people for every good work. We pray by your grace and power that you would use it now for these purposes in this service. And this we ask now in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Man, good to, good to sing them songs, amen. There is something about that. Think about a couple of lines in that song, those, the old bloody cross. Does it have an attraction to you? Amen. You know what that'll tell you? That'll tell you whether you're saved or not. Amen. The world looks at it completely different than a saved man does, especially uh, religious people. Amen. Religious people don't like the old bloody cross. They, they want to run to their religion and have their religion tell them they're okay and that they're good enough. The cross, on the other hand, tells us none of that. In fact, it tells us the opposite, doesn't it? That none of us are good enough or ever could be good enough or could ever earn. And it tells us and calls us to mind that we are indeed sinners in need of God's grace, amen, to be saved. And so what a glorious opportunity the Lord has given us to sing together this morning. And just a little kind of history of my own background for a moment. Since October of 1987, the earthly year in which the Lord God chose before the world began to save me, I've had this kind of infinity for John MacArthur's ministry. I remember I told Wendy, I still have the, and you young guys, you young people won't know what these are, but remember Brother Jeaner, the cassette tapes? Yeah, I've still got cassette tapes from 1987 of John MacArthur's sermons up in my closet. And one of the reasons that I've got kind of an infinity for his church is because 
I believe and I know that he has indeed been a beacon. He's been a light in our perverse generations. And I'm talking about from way, way back, from 1969 on. And again, is he perfect? Has he said some things? Yeah, uh, none of us are perfect. However, as a general rule, he has been a beacon and a true leader of our day in the Christian community, for sure. And of course, as we all know, this fluff up that's been coming up now with this transgender stuff and Alistair Begg, he is still standing firm. It's an amazing thing to see God use him in such a way. And that's kind of why I've been enamored with that. But as I was preparing for our message this morning, for our text, it's interesting. I, was, uh, I, I came across a quote by John MacArthur. And it's interesting, right? You kind of have this idea of what the church is like. You, you see it from the outside, and you, you say, man, that truly is a church that really hasn't had very many issues. And brethren, it's amazing that nothing could be further from the truth. After 50 years, he was reminiscing, and let me just quote this to you again, what I thought was pretty amazing. John said this, Certainly through the years here at Grace Community Church, we have had our share of discord and disunity. There were some dire times when staff mutiny occurred. The elders themselves were very divisive and took several hundred people out of the church. Think of that, brethren, for just a moment, how that happens. We've experienced it here, amen? There's this divisiveness, this, this disunity that takes place within the local church, and it causes all kinds of trouble, brother. It really, really does. He continues, and there have been people in our church who tried to divide and were somewhat successful. People in leadership in the church who were divisive. And then he, he closed with this terminology, with this little quote. This is just church life. Think of that, brethren, for just a moment. This is just church life. It happens within the local church. Things and trouble come knocking on your door. And the question becomes... How then does the church handle it? How then do the elders handle it? How then do we as brothers and sisters in the Lord handle these troublesome times? And really when you think about it, when you think about what the Lord, when he speaks concerning men who cause disunity, men who are disruptive to the local church. It's an amazing thing to see and understand what he says. Actually, he says that a man who is divisive is an abomination in his nostrils. And so again, we see the importance here. This is why the Apostle Paul taught so much and preached so much about us watching over that, protecting that, if you will, this unity that we've been, been talking about. In fact, I have said to the elders here on many occasions, you know, living church life over the last 35 years, uh, it's, remember Brother Dean, I said this not too long ago to the elders, it's going way too smoothly. It's going way too well. Something is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And believe me, brethren, sure enough, it was just a matter of time that something happened. Now, here's what always surprises me about that. It's not, again, as you as a pastor over these many, many years, it's not that you're uh, surprised that it happens because it's going to happen. You know what always surprises me is who it comes through. That's what always stuns me. You, you have close brethren, you have close friends, you have these people, and sometimes this stuff just raises its ugly head right from a source you would never dream of. 
and never think about. And so this really is the most amazing thing that we deal with. Now you remember, brethren, last Lord's Day morning, what Paul was preaching about. He was indeed, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 1 through 30, he's speaking about this unity. He's talking about the brothers, the church, if you will, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen. We were to be of one mind, one thought, one understanding, together against the outside forces, really the evil forces, the, the evilness that would come into the body. Now this morning, Paul shifts our attention. Not only, brethren, are we to be unified concerning those things that are outward and trying to come in, we must be unified amongst each other within the church. And this really is what he addresses for us this morning in our text. How do we as brethren address this idea of unity amongst each other, treating each other, and having the mind of Christ as we're going to see here concerning one another? It's so important. When you consider this, Paul, again, gives us God's prescription to heal and make well our actions, our attitudes, in order to counter our default mode. I call it our default mode because that's what happens sometimes. Our default mode is not to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ towards one another internally. Our default mode is automatically to not be that way. And again, this is the work of the Spirit amongst his people as we look at this. And so our tendencies, really, brethren, for strife and division internally are a most uh, needful thing for us to be careful of, for us to be well aware of. In fact, our actions and our attitudes, Paul addresses here in verses 3 and 4. Look there, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. Look what he says to the, to the Christian here. He says this, let nothing be done. Those are our actions. <laughs> Those are our actions internally towards one another. Amen. Let nothing be done. Look what he says. Through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind. There it is again, brethren. This idea of this attitude that we are to have towards one another. If we have this attitude of lowliness of mind and doing nothing out of vain glory and nothing out of spite towards one another. Oh, brothers, the church just operates so gloriously and so smoothly. However, we have our default mode, <laughs> which we all fight, unless you're different than I am. Amen and no. This is a growing process. This is really the Christian growing in the Lord, understanding these things and having the mind of Christ, having the attitude of Christ is so needful for us. Look what it says there. He completely does away with the self-esteem lie. <laughs> You know, people do stuff because they have too low a self-esteem. Actually, most of the time we have too high a self-esteem. We think too highly of ourselves. Rather than what Paul says here, look what he says. Again, our mindset, our attitude, he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on those things of others. Now, again, brethren, this is a humble attitude. This is an attitude here that we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ as he, as Paul uses the greatest and most glorious example that could ever be used in all in time of space. He calls on us. I told Wendy, I said, oh, she's not here. I, I, I told Wendy, man, it's been quite a battle studying this out because I know where I'm at and I know where the Lord wants me to be. 
Amen? It's a work. It's a grow. It's a growth. It's something here that the Spirit of God helps us with. Lowliness of mind, esteeming others, those are our actions, and let nothing be done out of it. Now, it's important, brethren, for us as we consider our text this morning, we notice, and again, we bled over into verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 last week. We bled over into them, but this morning I want us to take note of something. Verses 3 and 4 in our text are parenthesized, obviously, by verses 1, 2, and 3, amen? Or 1 and 2, they are parenthesized through there, then leads at the bottom of them as they are proceeded by the greatest example, again, in all of space and time. And I want you to see these four Fs. There's four Fs there in verse number 1. And I want, again, this absolutely plays into the text. And I want you to notice and understand there for sure that these four ifs, the ifs that we're going to look at quickly, very quickly, amen? These four ifs that we're going to look at are statements of fact. It literally means a filled and present condition. Because it is so, therefore this. Amen. You remember, this is what Paul's been preaching. When I say I'm a Christian, when I say I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, does my life reflect that? And so Paul here is going to show us as he just quickly in verse number one. Look at the first if. Four ifs there quickly. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. And literally, again, that word if, because there is consolation in Christ. This is what he's saying. Because there is consolation in Christ, there is an alleviation of misery, a renewing of the mind and spirit. In fact, you remember what Christ is called. He is called Israel's consolation. And so again, this is Christ. No, it isn't if. It's because there is consolation in Christ. This then for can take place. Look at the second if there. Look what it says there. If any comfort of love. Now again, brethren, this again is a statement of fact. It's not saying, well, if it's there. No, he's saying because it's there. These are the things that should follow. If, because there is comfort of love, the Father's love, brethren, is fixed and unchanging. This is the most important thing as we consider ourselves sinners who are fickle, who change every day, whose emotions are here and they're here. The Father's love never changes concerning you. When you are saved, when he saves you, he saves you based not on who you are and what you're doing, but on the work of Christ. He applies and imputes Christ's work to you. That never changes. You and I change. So Paul's saying, because the Lord's love is fixed and steady and sure, amen, these things can follow. Look at the third if there. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Because there is fellowship of the Spirit, being in communion with, to mutually participate in common things. We've looked at this. This is a picture of a man or a woman who's been saved. These things are present. There is, of course, fellowship with the Spirit. We are in communion with one another. We are in communion with the Spirit. Because that is so, and then he says, look at the fourth one. If, because there is bowels and mercies, every Christian, every Christian, every believer has indeed experienced the Lord in his mercy. Amen? The Lord in his affection. We've experienced this. Now, Paul is literally saying, as we get to our text, laying the groundwork here. He is saying because there is consolation in Christ, because we have comfort of love and fellowship of the Spirit and bowels of mercy, our minds, our attitudes, our actions towards one another in the local church should be governed by these because they are present, because it is something that is given to you as a believer. These things should then dictate our heart, our minds, our attitudes. And again, this is the great work of the Spirit. 
This is how he must work. And again, look what he does in verse 5. Because all of these things are present, look what he does. He, again, he calls for this internal unity amongst the brother in the local church. The Holy Ghost leads him to use the greatest, the most powerful example in all of space and time. Look at verse number 5. Look what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now again, brethren, this word mind here, it literally, if you will, literally means his selfless, sacrificial attitude, amen, that took him right to the cross. I want you guys to grasp and get a hold of the depth of this. Sometimes we read a text in scripture and we go, oh, oh, no, no. This is the kind of mind and attitude that led the Lord Jesus Christ right to the cross to die for the sins of his people. That's the kind of mind. Think of this for a moment. I was telling Wendy, boy, you know, when you look in Scripture, it's amazing, isn't it? The number of times, well, it's particularly in Ephesians chapter 5. Think of that for a moment. Paul, again, uses the great example of the love that Christ has for the church. For what? As an example, for those of us who are husbands, those of us who are wives, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Amen. I mean, think of the depth of that. And this is what Paul is saying. Here, that we should have the same attitude, the same mindset towards one another as Christ had towards him going to the cross and dying and raising again from the dead. Think of the depth of that. Brethren, like Wendy said, we're all in trouble. No, we are, but it's a growing process. Amen? And the more you get to know one another, the more this has to be so. Do you understand that? The more you get to know me and you see my failings, you see sometimes my attitude that's not right. Things, the closer you get to me and the closer I get to you, the more this must apply. Because as I was telling Brother Dean, you know, I've seen it so many times. A good brother, him and I both know him well. Been in fellowships with him here and there. Ben, he's been such a great asset and can be such a great asset to the church in my own life. But in the drop of a hat, if you don't agree with him on everything and you don't go follow the toe the line, he blows the church up. Unbelievably mean and, un, and unforgiving. None of the attitudes here that are required for you and I to love one another. Amen? In the same way that the attitude and love that led Christ to the cross to die for us. Let us insert that in before we think of our brethren, amen? And again, it's a high calling. It's a high calling from God, but it is indeed a glorious thing. Now look at here. This, is, this text really gets theological, and I like that. <laughs> I think theological. I think theologically. I like to sit and think these things through, and I like to study these things because I got up a hundred times from my desk and it just, it blows your mind. The depth of the text. Look what he says. Listen, brethren. Oh, this is glorious. The mind, the attitude of Christ. Think of what he did. Think of the heights he came down from when he condescended himself down. Think of that. Paul is calling on the brethren for us to treat one another and love one another in that sense. What an amazing thing. Look there. Verse number six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Man, 
What an amazing text we see. Beginning here in verse 6, Paul sets forth in detail the descending footsteps of Christ in his humiliation. I want you to think about what he's saying here. Footsteps that move from his eternal and undiminished deity to a man in his flesh who dies on a cross. I want you to consider that for a moment. He who came in the flesh, undiminished in deity, undiminished in attributes, Paul says, he appeared in the form of God. What does it mean to be in the form of God? It speaks of Christ's eternal sonship. It speaks of his unchangeable nature. Now you can go on our own website. This is important, brother. Brother Dean was talking about it, that Jesus was some created being. No! He's the eternal son of God. Even though I get under my bed and suck my thumb because it's difficult at times to understand all that. I'm finite. He's infinite. All I can do is read scripture and go, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I believe it. What does it mean to be in the form of God? Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, possesses all the attributes of deity. Listen to me. He is co-equal. He is co-existent. He is co-eternal with and of the same nature and essence of the Father. And brethren, this again is so important for us theologically. That is why we read the text, because of who he is and who he is. That's why he can say, it's not robbery for me to be equal with God. In other words, what he's saying there is to feloniously seize equal status from the Father, that status is always his. That never changes. That's why he could say, it's not robbery for me to come and be equal with God because I am God. I'm equal with God. I have the same essence. I have the same attributes. It is not robbery for me to be equal with God, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, you say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures this morning together. Oh, yes, he did. Over and over and over again. Now, do we understand all of it? Oh, no, brethren. It is a deep suck-your-thumb kind of thing at times. Look here, if you would, at John chapter 5. You say Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Then why do the Jews want to input in, uh, kill him? Why do they want to take him after he said what he said and then want to kill him? Because in the Jewish law, if someone claimed to be God or say they were spoken for God, they were to be stoned to death. Oh yeah, brother. He sure did. Look at John chapter 5. Again, one must consider and think these things through. And why is this so important? Because, brethren, look at John chapter 5. You understand. What you believe about who Christ is saves you. you. You understand that, right? There's no other name given under him by which men must be saved. What you believe about Christ saves you. Who he is, his personhood. He's not just another polytheist God out there. He's God in the flesh. Again, look at what happens here. You guys know how the Jews upheld the law. Now, brethren, I know, they added all kinds of things to it. But there were certain segments of the law that they stuck to, and they knew it like the back of their hand. And one of them was if someone claimed to be equal with God, they were going to kill them immediately because the law said, if any man says that, he must be killed. 
Well, John chapter 5, look there, look at verse number 14, if you would again here. Again, a glorious healing that the Lord does, but it upset some people, namely the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day. Brethren, if you're religious, run. Run to Christ. Cleave to his work. Religiosity will get you this. Look here, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. What? Sin no more. Well, here we go again, right? Jesus didn't bring a birthday cake. Jesus didn't bring a gift. He didn't say, hey, we're just going to, you know, I don't, you know, I'm against this. But he called men to repent. This is what he did. He heals this man, and then he finds him later, and he's sinning, and he says, wait. Hey, you, you stop sinning. Repent. Always. Oh, I like, well, Jesus ate with sinners. Yes, he did. All of us were sinners. He ate with, everyone that he ever ate with was a sinner. But you know what his message was? It was never, ever, stay the same you are. Same, the same way you are. It was always repent, right? Go and sin no more. Look here, what he says. Go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come on thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And again, all through John chapter 5 here, when you consider it six times in verses 4 through 15, whole, healthy, Jesus healed him, made him whole. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole. And therefore did Jesus persecute, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day again, he broke the Sabbath. They're adding again, brethren, listen, this is what religiosity does to you. It makes you completely out of balance. As Jesus told them, right, you should have done all these things, but then you should have also done this. Look what he says there. But Jesus answered, my father worketh here hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to have a party with him. Hey, come on over to my house. I want to hear more about what you're saying about this. No, they sought to kill him. Why? They sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The reason Jesus can say, it is not robbery for me to be equal with God is because that is a state that he never gave up. His attributes, his nature, his essence is God. God in the flesh. It's an amazing thing when you consider this and think about it. In fact, this form, this word that's used here, and again, you've you got to be careful because I'm telling you, it, it'll take you right down into the depth of it. But you realize the word form here had nothing to do with an image. Nothing. It had to do with the nature. The nature, what and who he was. Listen, when Jesus, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, you remember this. <laughs> when Jesus stands up, and tells the creation to be still. And the creation bent its knee to him. And it was what? It was still. Why? Because it was God speaking to his own creation. His nature has not changed. His essence has not changed. He told the demons what to do. He told nature what to do. He raised dead men by speaking. Those indeed are the forms of God. This is what Paul is talking about. Now there's another word later. Fashion that brings our attention. That's form and image, and that's what they see on the cross. There's that form and image. That's that. This form here is not. It is talking about the essence of Christ and who he is. Never, ever did he ever give up. 
any of those, if you will. Look here, John chapter 14. Again, we're just spending a little time in John this morning. Look at here. He made himself equal with God, so the Jews were going to kill him for that. Because, again, he was able to do what only God can do, heal at a word. That is the form. That's the essence. This is who he is. Look there, John chapter 14. Look at verse number 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Very narrow-minded, very true. Muhammad can't save you. I don't care what these pluralistic people say. They have changed scripture. They've changed the whole mindset of people. A hundred years ago, you would never hear one God's as good as another. Certainly not from a sound biblical church. No. One is not as good as the other. There's only one Savior. Only one. Look what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh on the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. What do they mean? They've seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. What does he mean? The Father and the Son look the same? No. They don't look the same. They are three in one. What does he mean? Look what he says. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Look at How did they know it? What form were they seeing as Jesus is walking on the earth? Look at verse 10. Believest thou that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but of the Father that dwelleth in me. He doth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very word's sake. Verily, I say, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, brethren, listen, what were they seeing? They were seeing the very essence and power of God at work in the Messiah. He was doing what God can do. His essence, his nature did not change. And it's an amazing thing when we get to the next verse, how the liberals, no, not even the liberals, just people who really don't understand what that means, how they denigrate Christ, how they denigrate his person, his attributes, his essence, his nature. And we mustn't ever tread there. I always tell the elders and all the brothers in the church, if I ever get up and say some weird, wacky, unorthodox thing, you just haul me out of here quickly before I cause harm to someone spiritually. Never. If I start saying it, you know that I'm losing my own mind. Dean's known me a long time. He knows. Mike starts going awry. Something's kicking in that ain't good. It's an amazing thing. May it never happen. It's an amazing thing. Brethren, listen, as I said, that ancient word form had no idea in it. it that the, the, you know, some form or shape of something. The ancient word means essence. The essential nature of God without implying any physical shape or image. Again, what are we looking at? We're looking at the form of God, his nature, his being, if you will, his essence. This is what he's saying. Jesus never once 
thought it was robbery to be equal with God because he is of the same essence, the same nature, the same personhood. It's an amazing thing when you consider this, brother. Now look, I'm just going to quote the Nicene Creed if I can. <laughs> Paul is simply saying what the Nicene Creed had to reaffirm because the liberal devils were out there running around denigrating Christ as a created being. He was created. No, he's eternal God. Listen to what they said. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is very God of very God. That is indeed what Paul is saying. This is what he's showing us here in this text. It's a deep theological thing, brother, stuff that I just, I just, I love, I love this. I drive my wife crazy because I think and love this stuff. That's why I, I have to be careful not to get out of balance. I, I like to, I lean, brother, I lean hard towards theology where I got to be balanced in my theology and live out that theology and be loving and caring too, amen? I mean, this really is such a good lesson for us to be theologically sound and yes, be loving and caring as we should and ought to be. Now look at verse number 7, Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number 7. Again, one of the glorious portions of this scripture presenting to us the God-man, the perfect God-man. Look there at verse number 7. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him, and that word took is very important, take, upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Brethren, his stooping down. The first steps the Lord Jesus took are almost incomprehensible for us to grasp. It, it really is when we consider this. He stooped from the presence of God to the place of men. There's no greater step. There's no greater rung that one could go on. God, the highest of the high. Stepping down into the presence of men. What, an, what a stunning thing. When you consider that, Paul says he made himself of no reputation. Now listen, brethren. Don't be fooled. There are many who believe he gave up part of his deity. That he gave up some of his godly attributes. Some of his essence of God. No, he did not. He gave up something, but it wasn't that. He divested himself temporarily of the glory that he had in heaven. The glory, brethren, that the human eye could never look upon. That's what he divested himself of. When he says, I made, he, he made himself of no reputation, he gave up the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. You realize that the human eye cannot look on the glory of God and live. It's not possible. So he gave that up, but none of his divinity, not when he can tell the future, not when he knows the future, not when he can tell his servant as he's standing in the flesh, go and you'll find this man carrying this pot, follow him and get the room ready. That is the nature and essence of God, his omnipresence and omniscience. He knows all things. That was never departed with. That was never divested in him ever, not once. However, his glory, this making himself of no reputation, that, of course, he voluntarily 
gave up. Look, if you would, in his prayer. What do I mean by this? Look at John chapter 17. Let's look there together. Look here, if you would. John chapter 17. I want you to see this. So important. You realize, brethren, people teach another Jesus. They do. They absolutely do. And sometimes that Jesus is so close you can't tell. That's what discernment's about. Not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right. And this is an area, fundamentally, brethren, that we must have right, that we must teach and cling to. Look there, if you would. John chapter 17, of course, the Lord's Prayer. Look at verse number 3. Listen to what he says. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee in the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That's the glory he participated here in the earth in. Something men could look at. Something men could see. Something that they wouldn't be zapped into a vapor by looking at him. He's finishing the work that the Father had given him. He's going to glorify the Father in his death. Look what he says. Look at verse number four. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O oh Father, you want to see what he gave up? The glory he gave up? He, talks, he tells us right here. O oh Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. His eternal glory that men could not look upon and cannot look upon because of how holy he is in that glorious state. That's what he gave up. That's what he divested himself of temporarily for 33 and a half years. This nonsense that he gave up his deity and gave up his attributes and his essence, they're full of it right up to their eyeballs in lies. The Lord Jesus divested himself of his expression of deity, but he never divested himself of his possession of deity. Do you understand that? His expression and his possession are two different things. And this is something he never gave up. Never. Not once. Ever. It's an amazing thing. And then Paul tells us, of course, that he took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now this is important, brethren. <laughs> He's in the form of God. Then he took on, if you will, the form of a servant. You know what he did? All Jesus did was add to his divine nature. He took nothing away. This, this is the problem. See, people look at him going, he took something away to replace it. No, all he did was add his human nature to his deity. There was an adding, not a subtracting. No. He did not subtract his deity so he could add his servanthood. No, he just added it simply to it. And you know what became of it? He became the perfect God-man. The hypostatic union perfectly joined together, the perfect God-man. That's what he did. He subtracted nothing. It's an amazing thing. If, you, if he would have exchanged the form of God, in verse number 6, for the form of the servant. 
That would definitely, brother. It would have it diminished his deity, but it couldn't be because his deity never changes. His unchanging attributes do not change, but rather he added to his divine nature the nature of a servant made in the likeness of men. He did indeed made himself the perfect God-man. Yes. You know why that had to be, brethren? To save us. To, to the thing we sang about this morning. The cross. All of these things. All surrounded the idea and the Father's plan to save a sinful people. And it must be this way. It has to be this way. A sinner cannot die for another sinner. One must be perfect and sinless in order to die. Now look at here if you would. This we see in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number 8. This is the word I told you about earlier. Form and fashion. Two different words. Two different meanings. If you go back far enough. Unfortunately, again, we, we don't go past 100 years. <laughs> we don't go back far enough. We, we think of our own age. The 60 years I've been alive, brother, and you've got to go back farther than that to understand it. You've got to dig a little deeper. You've got to read a little deeper. Study a little harder. Understand it properly and biblically. Look at verse number 8. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse number 8. He uses the word that everybody thinks verse 6 is, and it's not. Look at verse number 8. And being found in what? Fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Brethren, think of that for a moment. The word fashion literally does mean outward form and image. You know why that was important for those two to be together? Again, the perfect God-man. God internally divine, outwardly an image of us. Do you know why that was so important? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Isaiah tells us why. Look at chapter 50. Indeed, the fashion is indeed an outward form and image. That's absolutely true. Look at Isaiah chapter 50. This is what men saw. The image of the God-man. This is what men had to see. Look at verse number 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. Why did he come in the flesh? To be an offering and a blood sacrifice. The perfect one. This is what we see. This is the fashion of a man. This is what men saw when he was on the cross. This is what we read about, his fashion, his man, becoming a man, his incarnation. <laughs> what a glorious union together. The perfect God-man. Look at chapter 52. He goes on to describe the image of Christ, the fashion of a man. 
Look at chapter 52. Look at verse number 13. Behold my what? Servant. <laughs> well, that's what he did. He, he took on the form of a servant in the fashion of a man. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to be very high, which is where we're going next, 9, 10, and 11. You've got the lowliness of what he did up to the high again to be brought up again. Think of it, brethren. What a glorious thing. Look what it says there. As many were astonished at thee, his visage, his fashion, his image and form as a man, this is what they saw. And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. See, that's why the two, God and his divinity, undiminished, mingled with the servant, the man, the two together, brethren, saving the souls of his people. Becoming that image, that fashion that men can see. It's an amazing thing when you think about it, brother. And I like what one pastor said. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity. Down further still. Down to the very roots and seabed of the nature that he created. But he goes down only to come up again. He goes down, down only to come up again. Amen? It's an amazing thing. And bring the ruined world up with him. This is God's beautiful, perfect plan. It's an amazing thing to behold and understand that and realize what he's done. Man, it moves the soul. Moves the heart to... Understand the depth of all of this. In fact, look at verses 9, 10, and 11. His glorious raising up. His glorious exaltation. Really here, God's glorious warning to all of mankind. <laughs> when you consider this, look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Wherefore, because of all of this, God also hath highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of things in the heaven and things in the earth. You see, he's encompassing all of it. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And we notice that he goes from the lowly servant on the cross in this text to Lord. That's the coming back up. Down, down, down. To be brought back up, up, up. To save his people. Look there. Things of heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth everywhere. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing thing to behold. What an amazing thing that God has done. What a stunning thing. 
fact, Paul says here that the Father highly exalted him from the suffering and dying servant to the only Savior. <laughs> now, eternally that took place. I'm talking about an earthly time. It's just like October of 1987. That's the earthly time that the Father, before the world began, chose to draw me onto the Son. This earthly thing is worked out perfectly. He became the suffering servant and was raised up to the only Savior. Now, he was highly exalted. <laughs> now, we really don't have the English word to tell you what that really means. He was exalted above exalted, above exalted, above exalted. Higher than you can think of anything that you can imagine, the Father has exalted him. Now listen, he did it in a couple ways. And again, we'll finish this text up. He exalted him higher than higher than you can think of in two different ways as we look at the text. In verse number 9, verse number 9, he exalted him in the present. And that's important. The present time as we're all sitting here now. The present time. In fact, he exalted him by giving him a name that is above every name. What's the importance of the name? Well, the name Jesus Christ, right? And of course, as we know, as I've said, as I believe, because God has made me believe it. Otherwise, I'd be like the rest. Well, it's just as good as the other. Jesus is just as good as Muhammad, just as good as this guy or that guy. No, actually, presently he's given one name, the name Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's the name the Bible says. It is a name that's above every name. It is the name that can only, men can only be saved in. Remember what was written in Acts chapter 4? Remember that? There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. What a glorious name. So presently, his name is what men must turn and believe and trust in. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was exalted above all, the only Savior for you. Now you say, well, that sounds easy, but it isn't easy without the work of the Spirit. Without the work of the Father, and obviously without the work of the Son. The Father drawing you to that truth. The Holy Spirit of God regenerating you to that truth. That you might look at the cross and say, yes, he is who God testifies he is. Not what Pastor Mike testifies, not what Pastor Dean testifies, not what any Christian testifies to, although we should have a good testif testify concerning him, but what the Father testifies that he is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. May the Lord grant that to you if he hasn't. May his word work in your heart that you might believe and be saved. Amen? It's amazing, isn't it? Second of all, we see here that Christ was exalted not only in the present but also in the future. <laughs> This is what my lost brother likes to read, and I keep telling him, Brother, you got to believe. You ain't going to like that. Look what's going to happen. Brother, and listen to me in all seriousness. You young people who maybe have had your minds warped, warped by a worldly view, 
May the Lord take it out of your mind, especially concerning him, concerning this. May he flush that right down the proverbial turlet. May he take it from you and fill it with this. Look at the future. Look at here, brethren. Look at verses 10 and 11. That the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, the things in heaven, the things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what's missing. Many do not understand. There is a time coming in the future when this will happen. When he will stand and you will stand, before him, before his judgment seat, a Christian for the works you've done, the lost man for the works you're relying to be saved on. And you will be condemned in your works. Your works cannot save you. Your works are simply a fruit of what the Spirit has done to you. It is not a way of salvation. It is because you are saved that this is, worn out, is borne out. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God who lives in you that makes this happen. To the glory of God. Now, brethren, as I said, this has been quite a experience for me. I know there was an experience. Yeah, when you are confronted with the Word of God in such a way, it becomes an experience. It becomes a reality for you of what really happened here, of what it really means, the dire importance it is to the soul. As I said a couple of weeks ago, as a pastor, I've done many funerals, many, lots of them. I've stood in front of the congregation and preached the gospel message to them, I've went to the, down to the funeral home. I've, I've been out to the graveside standing there. And brethren, if the Lord tarries, somebody will be preaching mine. Because I am dying. I mean, I don't have a disease, but I'm dying from the sin disease. I'm going, I used to look like these young men back here. I'm dying. My body, and you, you men too, over here and over here. This body isn't going to last. What lasts is your spirit, your soul. That which, as God himself said, the Lord Jesus said, fear not men and what they can do to the body. Don't fear them. Fear him who after the body is dead can cast the soul into hell. That's the one. He's the one we must give an account to. He's the one. Brethren, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude of Christ, humility, obedience, sacrifice, great reward. This is the mind and attitude of Christ. This is what keeps the unity within the church. When we look at one another and we see one another and we compare to what Christ has done for us, brethren, oh my I've been forgiven of eternal things. I sinned against an eternal God. 
And because of the work of Christ, he forgave me. <laughs> who am I to stand in front of my brother, who I may have sinned against or he may have sinned against me, and hold that against him? Whew. That's out of measure. That's way out of measure. You've been forgiven eternal things and you're going to hold something. Yes, that is very real and present, I'm sure. But that's why, again, brethren, we have the medicine, we have the prescription to fix it and to have it right. And then it is done right. Forgiveness is real. It isn't just a thing that we pretend. It is a real thing. Amen? Amazing. It really is. These are the fruits that will keep unity in our local church. A lot of trouble can, will, and does arrive at our doors. There's no question about that. But as J-Mac said, this is church life. This happens, unfortunately. May the Spirit of God, through his word today, may he give us the mind of Christ towards one another the attitude towards one another, a Christ-like loving attitude. All right, let's pray. Father, we are always amazed at what you've done. <laughs> the depths, if you will, that you went to in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life. He was in the form of God and also in the fashion of a man, fashion of a servant. It was indeed perfect God and perfect man coexisting together only and that can only be said of him <laughs> that's the glorious thing no other man can take them words and say those words only Christ who lived as I said every minute every second every minute every hour every day every week every month every year sinless without spot, in thought, in action, in deeds. He was perfect. It must be that way. It has to be that way. That he could take my sin upon himself. That he could take the sin of all who trust in him and bear it as we sang a dark Calvary. Oh, it was dark. <laughs> we know precisely when the transaction took place. High noon, it was dark. And the wrath of God was there, resting upon him. He indeed became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. What a glorious thing. And he went to the grave for three days and three nights, exactly as Holy Writ says. And when they went to the grave that early 
Sunday morning. I still love these words. The angel meets Mary and the other ladies. Sitting there and they go in and he's gone. What, what have you done with him? And They said, he is not here. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Oh, yes. He went from the lows of the lows on the cross and the grave all the way to be exalted, highly exalted, exalted above all. And when one comes to believe in him and in his name, Oh, Father, what a glorious transaction. One goes from a dead sinner to a living being spiritually. One who has been born from above, just as our brother Nicodemus said, we know that you are a man come from God, for no man could do the things that you do. You were indeed God in the flesh. And we thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. We thank you for your priestly work and the sacrifice of your son and the raising back to life. And even now as we are here this morning, this afternoon, as we are considering the third person of the Trinity and his glorious work in the earth, his ongoing work convicting the world of sin, and of righteousness. And Father, we pray this morning that if anyone's lost, a lost sheep this morning, that maybe today is the day they're convicted of their sin, convicted of your righteousness, that they might turn and believe, trust and be saved. Oh, Father, it is our plea. May your will be done, and it always is, perfectly. Now we ask as we gather around the Lord's table together, as we celebrate, we remember we Indeed, proclaim to the world that we believe every word concerning your son, concern every word that's in Scripture, period. We don't always understand it, but Lord, we believe it. We thank you now and pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.